Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Wednesday, June 11th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, in a shocking result, Eric Cantor lost the Republican primary for his House seat in Virginia. He stepped down as the majority leader today. So I do not want to take up an extra segment on the show. I want to keep the show like the show always is. I want to talk about the Beatles drummer for a week. I want to end with a spiel about a dolphin and human encounter. I want to start off by talking about sugary drinks. That's all going to happen. But... I do want to talk a little bit about Cantor. So let's do this. Let's play. Let's inaugurate this little game called One Question, One Question Only, where I call up a smart person and get to ask that person one question I've been dying to ask. So here now is John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hello, John. Hey, Mike. So here's my one question, one question only. So we're told that the consequence of this will be moving the Republican caucus in the House a little more to the right, damning the immigration bill. And yet at the same time, we were always told that the biggest obstacle to John Boehner even introducing his immigration bill was Eric Cantor. So are you sure, and here's my one question, one question only, are you sure that the consequence of Cantor losing will be to hurt immigration's chances and to move the Republican caucus to the right? Well, so those are two separate things. Ah, does uh, it still count as one the, question, though? <laughs> well, I'll give you an answer that has uh, that is many faceted. Okay, very um, good. The reason that immigration reform is dead is that immigration reform was already dead, and it was dead for this reason. And there's a quote that a leadership aide gave me back in February, who said that you know the Chamber of Commerce may want immigration reform, lobbyists may want immigration reform, the evangelical community may want immigration reform, but none of them can primary you, which means none of them has the energy and power of the grassroots to kick you out of office. So now anybody who's left who was nervous in the first place about being primaried and made to pay by their grassroots is doubly nervous about that. Uh, So that's why immigration reform changes. What happens to the ultimate composition of House leadership will be fascinating because some people have said, well, this this means a threat to John Boehner. The problem with a threat to John Boehner, as has always been a problem with threats to leaders, is that you got to replace somebody with someone else, and there is no one who can get the majority number of votes. Now, the question, though, is who gets to be majority leader, and so we'll see uh, a battle there. But all of this will kind of be um, the preliminaries. Because if the Republicans regain control of the Senate, the whole shape of the whole thing is going to change. What conservatives may want or not want really changes when you have the expectations of being a governing party, which is what would happen if they controlled all of Congress. You would have to put forward legislation. It would have to pass, get votes, be appealing to a broader core of the, of the country. And that makes it harder to be um, highly doctrinaire. That will kind of change this debate a lot. I knew you'd know. Thank you, John Dickerson. (laughs) Hey, Mike, thanks for asking. (laughs) 
The New York City Department of Health is considering a ban on large sugary drinks. In fact, they've been trying to push it through for a while now. And nationally, there's a new, well, maybe it's not a movement yet, but there's certainly an idea to ban the use of food stamps to purchase soda and sugary drinks. Dr. Sanjay Basu, an assistant professor at medicine at the Stanford Prevention Research Center, has studied this issue extensively. He joins me now. Hello, Dr. Basu. Hi, thanks for having me. So there's certainly an obesity and diabetes problem, and it causes the U.S. lots of money, and it causes individuals anguish. How much of that is caused by what we drink? This has been much debated, and we're still trying to figure out all the molecular pathways. But what we've been capturing is that the same amount of calories in that liquid sugar form seem to be increasing the risk of type 2 diabetes, even in comparison to other junk foods. And this has been part of the controversy about food stamps is the question around whether our uh, nutritional earmarked tax dollars are really going to a product that doesn't have any nutritional value and only poses a health harm. Well, describe your study. What did you study and uh, how did you come to your conclusions? Yeah, we were asked by a couple different groups to do this study because some experiments out of Harvard and the University of California were finding that food stamp users in the same income brackets and neighborhoods as otherwise similar people who weren't on food stamps were actually getting higher rates of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. And the Institute of Medicine in 2013 was trying to find ways to make food stamps healthier. The biggest suggestion was to try to subsidize fresh fruits and vegetables more so that people could afford it. But the question was, where's that budget going to come from? And with all these recent studies that suggested that the sugary beverages didn't have any health impact and only had health harms, we tried to figure out what would be the impact on diabetes and obesity of uh, ending that subsidy on sugary beverages. So we combined a bunch of uh, economic data with some models and found pretty large impacts on obesity and type 2 diabetes from uh, ending the subsidy on sugary beverages. I totally buy that if people, me included, were to eliminate sugary drinks, it would have a beneficial effect. That's true if we were to eliminate the drinks. Do you have any evidence that banning the use of uh, food stamps on sugary drinks would decrease the intake of sugary drinks? Yeah, we actually use these variations, natural variations in how people get their benefits and the price variations of the uh, drinks to calculate how much do people typically compensate if their SNAP benefits, their food stamp benefits are restricted. And in fact, we have some historical data on this when SNAP was first uh, restricted from purchasing alcohol. Mm-hmm. How much do people compensate with their own income versus not? And actually, there's a pretty substantive decline in actual consumption. Well, how about this question? Why, why do people drink sugary drinks? I think they're quite uh, potent. They're extremely attractive. People are free to do what they want. The, the question really behind these policy proposals is what should we do with the taxpayer dollars that are earmarked for nutrition? We have a $76 billion budget earmarked for nutrition, and a lot of complaints have been registered that uh, if taxpayers are paying for nutrition, uh, are they being charged twice? They're going once to subsidize sugary beverages and a second time to pay for Medicare and Medicaid expenses on preventable diseases. So I'm a primary care physician. I treat uh, in a clinic where the majority of my patients are actually on food stamps, and I've talked to them about this quite extensively. Uh, the reality is a lot of them would like to afford other foods that are healthier, but they're quite expensive. So the question is where the budget's going to come from to help subsidize the more expensive and healthier foods. Are you sure that's true, or is that the sort of thing that you say to your doctor? It seems it like the right the answer, you know? you yeah. doctor. But what the good news is that there's been some incentive pilot studies out in Massachusetts that have found some pretty significant increases in those 
fruit and vegetable uh, consumption when they are actually subsidized, when the budget is redirected towards helping people purchase. So that's the good news. Some people do lie, but even if they lie, there's still a significant increase in, in the good stuff in, in spite of the fact that people might overestimate how healthy they can be. Now, uh, if you just bear with me for a second, this I think there's a fundamental aspect to this that people who advocate programs like Mayor Michael Bloomberg, whose heart's in the right place and wants other people's hearts to be healthy. But I think that they, you know, he's a really rich guy. And I don't think that they understand the motivation. And so this is from um, George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier. And he was writing about the diet. He breaks it down by pennies, the diet of the Englishman when he was writing their diet. And he said, the basis of their diet, therefore, is white bread and margarine, corned beef, sugar, tea, and potatoes, an appalling diet. Would it not be better if they spent more money on wholesome things like oranges and wholemeal bread, or if they saved on fuel and ate their carrots raw? Yes, it would. But the point is that no ordinary human being is ever going to do such a thing. The ordinary human being would sooner starve than live on brown bread and raw carrots. And the particular evil is that the less money you have, the less inclined you feel to spend it on wholesome food. A millionaire may enjoy breakfast of orange juice and Ravita biscuits. The unemployed man doesn't. <laughs> I'm going to go on. When you are unemployed, which is to say when you are underfed, harassed, bored, and miserable, you don't want to eat dull, wholesome food. You want to eat something a bit tasty. Therefore, it's, there's always something cheaply pleasant to tempt you. Unemployment is an endless misery that has to be constantly palliated, and especially with tea, the Englishman's opium, a cup of tea or even an aspirin is much better as a temporary stimulant than a crust of brown bread. And so I submit if tea is the Englishman's opium, a bottle of Pepsi is the American's heroin, and I'm not sure we're going to get to the bottom of cutting out sugary drinks until much heavier lift is done in terms of, you know, the immiseration of poverty, essentially. Actually helping people out of this. I agree. I think the food stamp budget can be much better directed towards helping people, especially in a food environment that's really challenging to be healthy in. Uh, But, you know, we had this conversation 50 years uh, ago with tobacco when tobacco was first being discovered as something that wasn't just a stress reliever, as all the doctors were in the magazine smoking and uh, recommending different brands. We eventually found tobacco to have only health harms and no health benefits, but the reality was that we needed to create an environment in which people could uh, not smoke but and, and not die from smoking, but still be uh, be able to be supported in doing so. And our food environment certainly right now is so broken um, that we really need to think about what our nutritional programs are doing. Yeah, but smoking is still more popular uh, the further down you go on the economic ladder. It's still uh, it's still an escape from immiseration. And I think sugary Absolutely. drinks are in that category, too. Yeah, if we could fix poverty, I think a lot of these problems would go away. I think the, the narrow question for our one study, which, of course, can't solve poverty, yeah. is the question of what we should do with one nutritional program that affects 46 million people and which seems to have, unfortunately, some perversities built into it. Um, Thankfully, the good news is some of the other nutrition programs that have tried to make some subtle reforms, the Women, Infants, and Children program, the School Lunch program, have made some real substantive improvements on on the nation's health. And so do you have a projection, if your recommendations are put in place, what will happen to the obesity statistics or the diabetes statistics? At a minimum, we're looking at about 400,000 people with less obesity 
and about 250,000 less cases of type 2 diabetes over the next decade. So very statistically significant. Dr. Sanjay Basu is an assistant professor of medicine at the Stanford Prevention Research Center. He's also investigated the effects of sugary food and is a good sport in terms of listening to my extensive readings of the work of George Orwell. Thank you, Dr. Basu. <laughs> I read Chomsky. It's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It was 50 years ago today and tomorrow and a few days ago that Jimmy Nickel was a Beatle. Jimmy Nickel was called in to drum after Ringo, star, do I have to say star, got tonsillitis. And it changed his life, not for the better. But let's talk about this period with Alan Cozen, a New York Times culture reporter. He recently wrote, Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand changed everything. And it did. Hello, Alan. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well. What was the period? All right, it was 1964. It was the first week and second week of June of 1964. What were the Beatles up to then? Well, they had a world tour coming up. They were going to be playing in Hong Kong and Australia, um, also Denmark and Holland. And as you mentioned, Ringo got sick, uh, had tonsillitis. And uh, the Beatles themselves, particularly George, actually wanted to cancel the tour. Um, they were very protective of Ringo, and they didn't uh, they didn't feel that they should be performing without him. Um, Brian Epstein had a different view, being a manager and having signed contracts that obligated him to provide the Beatles. Uh, he knew that they actually had to go through with it, and uh, they chose Jimmy Nickel uh, to fill in for Ringo um, because he was actually a very experienced drummer. He was making records when the Beatles were really just sort of playing in little clubs in Liverpool, and uh, he would. He had a very good reputation. Uh, he was a bit older than them, but not too much. And uh, and he knew Ringo's parts, more or less, because he was in bands that had to play Beatles songs by that point. But he had never played with the Beatles before this tour of Europe? Even in no, session no, work? No. Yeah. No, um... They didn't really, at that point, use session musicians at all, um, with the exception of one session very early on when George Martin brought in a drummer named Andy White uh, to, to play on Love Me Do. And they made it very clear at that point that they were the band they wanted to play on the recordings. And Ringo actually did pretty much the same thing as Andy White did on his version of Love Me Do, so George Martin relented. And uh, so they wouldn't have had someone like Jimmy Nickel come in uh, to to work with him in the studio. Obviously, once he was chosen, they had to rehearse with him. And there is a little video clip of him in the studio just sort of demonstrating some rolls and fills uh, while the Beatles looked on. Uh, but uh, but he never had performed with them before this tour. Are there any recordings of his actual playing in Europe? There are. Ooh. Um, most of them are pretty dismal. Uh, there, there are some from uh, Holland uh, and Denmark. Uh, the, and actually, the ones from Holland, uh, there really is a reasonably decent soundboard recording from a city called Blocker, B-L-O-K-K-E-R. I'm not 
not sure exactly where the full tape is, but five or six songs have gotten out. And oddly enough, you can't hear the Beatles' vocals on them, but you hear the instrumentals very clearly, including Jimmy Nichols' drumming. which I have to say is not quite as characterful as, as Ringo's drumming. Yeah. Because Ringo yeah. was, I mean, if people miss the history, he was brought in as the, hate to use the term, as the ringer. He was really accomplished. He also changed the dynamic of the band, and I guess Pete Best was kind of a mopey drummer, and Ringo is, of course, very extroverted. But he was a really accomplished drummer in keeping with the musicality of the rest of the guys. That's true. You know, it's funny because Ringo... Uh, People treat him as if he was just some sort of late add-on and, uh, you know, just sort of lucky to be with these really talented guys. But Rinko's career actually took off in Liverpool much earlier than the rest of the Beatles. He was in all the good groups. They knew him from Hamburg uh, because his group, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, was playing there at the same time as the Beatles, and they'd gotten to be friendly. And when Pete Best was sick, which apparently happened every now and then, they got Ringo to sit in. And so they knew his drumming. uh, They knew him. They felt that as a, a personality, he fit into the group much better than Pete did. Pete was a loner. Yeah. History pretty much shows that, uh, because there are recordings of the Beatles with Pete Best too, and the drumming is not that good. And yeah. I think history shows that once Ringo joined the band, the chemistry really gelled. Uh, there is some video, by the way, uh, in Holland, they did a TV show uh, that, that began with an interview in which he was asked about filling in for Ringo. You're on, Jimmy. Well, whether you find it difficult to take over the role of Ringo. He very modestly uh, said... No, not really. No. <laughs> as far as Ringo, I can never um, I can never make up for what Ringo is, you know. How, how I just you be doing this? Um, until next Thursday. Yes. So you're sort of understudy? Yes, I am. You think of the great breaks? Oh, yes. Treating you good? I'm marvelous. <laughs> How is Ringo, by the way? He's he's getting, I think he's getting better. Yeah. Oh, we're off. He's ill. <laughs> you know, he was uh, given a gold watch and, uh, and sent off to the airport on his own. It, it, it's actually quite sad. There is a photo of him sitting in the airport by himself waiting to go back to England. I don't know what to make of the lore that surrounded him afterwards, because people attached to the Beatles often have this. But, I mean, there was a book written about him called The Beatle Who Vanished, but apparently he hadn't really vanished. So what do we know about his post-Beatles life? Well, I do know that he continued playing with other groups uh, and went to various countries in the world. I mean, I didn't really keep track of Jimmy Nickel too much after his Beatles appearance. Right. Uh, but I think that that was... You know, one of his problems, he never really ended up having a huge career and he tended to 
for various reasons, I guess different reasons each time, would quit the bands that he was in and pick up and go someplace else, sometimes to a different city or a different country. And you'd never know where he would turn up. And then he'd turn up for a while and disappear again. Um, I thought I had read at one point that he might have been living in New Jersey for a while, but I'm not sure about that. I and, think you're thinking uh, of and, Eddie, of Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, well, that could be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah. there are so many people who are called the Fifth Beatles, Stu Sutcliffe, uh, Pete Best, uh, George Martin, who you, who you mentioned. I think Jimmy Nickel deserves consideration for the title. Or where would you put him? Is he at least the sixth or seventh Beatle? Oh, he might be about the 23rd Beatle or something <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, 22 I mean, Beatles right. better he than does, me. He does deserve consideration because he did, after all, play with them for two pretty eventful weeks uh, during which they played lots of concerts. Didn't do any recordings, didn't do any creative work, but he was with them on that slog that was touring. And he did get a taste of that, which even more than Pete Best did, you know, yeah. in those two weeks. Alan Kozen is a New York Times culture reporter, and he has an ebook out called Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Mike. Oh, yeah, I tell you something I think you'll understand Can I say that something And now the spiel. We need to talk about sex with a dolphin. Remember, podcasts have a stop button. But stay with me. I think you'll like this. The BBC is airing a documentary that seems very fascinating. It's about an experiment in the 1960s to teach a dolphin to talk. Dolphins are as intelligent as a seven-year-old. You don't, you don't hear that the other way, right? You don't hear you go to back-to-school night in your kindergarten, and the kindergarten teacher says, oh, your child is so smart. He's dolphin smart. That would not be good. So back to the documentary. The headlines out of this aquatic version of Project Nim, which was about raising a chimp as a human baby, they're not about the amazingly ambitious experiment in cross-species communication. No, the headlines are a mischaracterization of an instance of cross-species coitus. As longtime listeners of The Gist know, the topic of sex with animals is not one we shy away from, no matter how many advertisers scream and leave panic-stricken. And sex with an animal could get you sentenced to death in colonial England, we have learned. But despite that, here were today's headlines on Twitter. Tom Koch, a member of the ABC 13 family since 1982, tweeted, former NASA dolphin researcher admits she had sex with dolphin after falling in love. He links to a Daily News article that says, Woman reveals she had sex with dolphin during 1960s NASA experiment. New York Post, this woman says she had sex with a dolphin during a NASA experiment in the 1960s. NASA experiment? What were they, on a spaceship? No, NASA was just one of the funders for this experiment I was talking about. And here's the actual story. It's fascinating. It's a lot more fascinating than those reports would indicate. Margaret Howe, which was her name at the time, was living on St. Thomas in the Caribbean in 1963. She heard about dolphin research on the 
the other side of the island. She went to the house, and even though she wasn't an expert, she did impress the scientists with her moxie and interest in dolphins. The head researcher was Dr. John Lilly, who's a neuroscientist and was a contemporary of Dr. Timothy Leary. He was fascinated with interspecies communication. Soon, Margaret convinced Lilly to turn his research facility into a dolphin-friendly home. They flooded the entire thing with water. Margaret moved in around the clock, and here she is recording sounds with the dolphin named Peter. Today is August 18. This is the morning lesson with Peter. Hello. Hello. The experiment didn't exactly work. I mean, she did get Peter the dolphin to vocalize an approximation of some words, like when she said, work, 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 he would give the dolphin version of play, play, play. You know, as I say that, maybe I'm totally wrong. It kind of did work, right? A dolphin could on cue vocalize consistent utterances. That is something. Maybe Peter the dolphin was undone by the fact that Dr. Lilly injected him with LSD. Why do dolphins need LSD? They already like fish. (laughs) That was a just low point. You just heard it. Anyway, the sex. Well, Peter was an adolescent dolphin, and he would become aroused. So to placate him, Margaret, I don't want to tell you. Here's the clip. Peter was right there. He knew that I was right there. Again, it was sexual on his part. It was not sexual on mine. Sensuous, perhaps. We've just become part of what was going on, like an itch. Just get rid of that. We'll scratch it and we'll be done. Move on. And and that's really all it was. <laughs> it wasn't sex. Humans manually stimulate animals all the time. Every dog breeding manual talks about this. Zoos do it to inseminate other animals. But that was the headline, and that was the focus of this overall interesting story, which will make for a good documentary. You know, it was the 60s, it was the age of Aquarius and aquariums, I guess. And this particular form of contact between dolphins and humans wasn't exactly at an emotional remove. Margaret, and this is being touted as her speaking out for the first time, but she was quoted extensively when Dr. Lilly wrote a book about this called The Mind of the Dolphin. She does say that it was a sensuous experience for her. And in her writings, she said, it is a very precious sort of thing. Peter is completely involved, and I involve myself to the extent of putting as much love into the tone, touch, and mood as possible. Okay. But you know, bonding with animals in profound ways is not rare, and we as a species seem to respond specifically to the woman-animal connection. Here's an interesting angle. Sasha Archibald, writing in The New Inquiry, notes that women and animals... Here, I'll read. Nearly all of the wild animals in which Westerners are most fascinated made their public debut beside a young woman. The first photos of a live panda were images of the baby panda Su Lin nestled in the arms of 1930s socialite cum explorer Ruth Harkness. The first close-up images of chimpanzees in the wild were those of chimp David Greybeard reaching his hands to touch long-legged Jane Goodall. There was Margaret Howe, who we just talked about, hugging Dolphin Peter, the zoologist Diane Fossey of Gorillas in the Mist coyly lending her pen to Gorilla Peanuts, and Joy Adamson nuzzling the lion Elsa. That's from Born Free. And I also thought of King Kong, which is, of course, fiction, but it totally fits in with the theme. And like the 
tragic ending of that movie, the cancellation of the dolphin experiment pretty much killed Peter. He was taken away from Margaret. He was depressed. He refused to breathe. And he sank to the bottom of his tank and died. Dolphins do that. Twas beauty that killed the beast. That is the last line of King Kong. It's actually an uninformed reading of what happened. As with Peter the dolphin, as in Nim's case, as reflected by the lady has sex with dolphin titterings, There is a widespread ignorance as to the ways of animals. They experience emotions. They get depressed. They're sensitive. And because we're animals too, I wonder if sometimes we can't show more of that particular animalistic quality. And that is it for the show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, when fully mature, can eat up to 30 pounds of fish a day. Only one side of Andy Bauer's brain sleeps at a time. This enables him to stay awake for five hours straight, executive producing Slate Podcasts. You could subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. I haven't read the reviews in a while. I just went there. There was a great one, so many great ones. One was from someone named Sick of Idiots. And if Sick of Idiots likes you... And gives you five stars. Well, you know, by implication, you could say maybe you're not an idiot. I went to see some of Sick of Idiot's other reviews. She gave a one-star review to an Audubon, or maybe he gave a one-star review to an Audubon butterfly app and noted that this butterfly guide searches for birds. The help files refer to birds. Sloppy app. I can see why you're sick of idiots. You can search for Slate Gist in your favorite podcast app, your Android or iOS device on tune in or stitcher we will be in the slate daily podcast feed by going to slate.com slash just email you can sign up for a daily email and that we'll send to you as soon as the show posts or email us at the gist at slate.com last thought a podcast about dolphins could just be called the podcast it works or if the podcast were specifically a debate show within the dolphin community you could call it the blowhole you're entering the blowhole and that's it for the blowhole for june 11th Keep your dorsal fin distinct and a layer of acoustic fat surrounding your melon, thus enabling echolocation. And thanks for listening.